it's Diane. To help you sleep tonight, I'm going to read to you Chapter 3 of Grandfather's Chair by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 3 Not long after Grandfather had told the story of his great chair, there chanced to be a rainy day. Our friend Charlie, after disturbing the household with beat of drum and riotous shouts, raced up and down the staircase, overturning of chairs, and much other uproar, began to feel the quiet and confinement within doors intolerable. But as the rain came down in a flood, the little fellow was hopelessly a prisoner, and now stood with sullen aspect at a window, wondering whether the sun itself was not extinguished by so much moisture in the sky. Charlie had already exhausted the less eager activities of the other children, and they had betaken themselves to occupations which did not admit of his companionship. Lawrence sat in a recess near the bookcase, reading, not for the first time, The Midsummer Night's Dream. Clara was making a rosary of beads for a little figure of a sister of charity who was to attend the Bunker Hill Fair and lend her aid in erecting the monument. Little Alice sat on Grandfather's footstool with a picture book in her hand, and for every picture the child was telling Grandfather a story. She did not read from the book, for little Alice had not much skill in reading, but told the story out of her own heart and mind. Charlie was too big a boy, of course, to care anything about little Alice's stories, although Grandfather appeared to listen with a good deal of interest. Often in a young child's ideas and fancies, there is something which requires the thought of a lifetime to comprehend. But Charlie was of opinion that, if a story must be told, it had better be told by Grandfather than little Alice. Grandfather, I want to hear more about your chair, said he. Now Grandfather remembered that Charlie had galloped away upon a stick in the midst of the narrative of poor Lady Arabella, and I know not whether he would have thought it worthwhile to tell another story merely to gratify such an inattentive auditor as Charlie. But Lawrence laid down his book and seconded the request. Clara drew her chair nearer to Grandfather, and little Alice immediately closed her picture book and looked up into his face. Grandfather had not the heart to disappoint them. He mentioned several persons who had a share in the settlement of our country and who would be well worthy of remembrance if we could find room to tell about them all. Among the rest, Grandfather spoke of the famous Hugh Peters, a minister of the gospel who did much good to the inhabitants of Salem. Mr. Peters afterwards went back to England and was Champlain to Oliver Cromwell, but Grandfather did not tell the children what became of this upright and zealous man at last. In fact, his auditors were growing impatient to hear more about the history of the chair. After the death of Mr. Johnson, said he, Grandfather's chair came into the possession of Roger Williams. He was a clergyman who arrived at Salem and settled there in 1631. Doubtless the good man had spent many a studious hour in this old chair, either penning a sermon 
or reading some obtuse book about theology till midnight came upon him unawares. At that period, as there were few lamps or candles to be had, people used to read or work by the light of a pitch pine torches. These supplied the place of the midnight oil to the learned men of New England. Grandfather went on to talk about Roger Williams and told the children several particulars which we have not room to repeat. One incident, however, which was connected with his life must be related because it will give the reader an idea of the opinions and feelings of the first settlers of New England. It was as follows. The Red Cross While Roger Williams sat in Grandfather's chair at his humble residence in Salem, John Endicott would often come to visit him. As the clergy had great influence in temporal concerns, the minister and magistrate would talk over the occurrences of the day and consult how the people might be governed according to scriptural laws. One thing especially troubled them both. In the old national banner of England, under which her soldiers have fought for hundreds of years, there is a red cross which has been there ever since the days when England was in subjection to the Pope. The cross, though a holy symbol, was abhorred by the Puritans because they considered it a relic of Popish idolatry. Now, whenever the train band of Salem was mustered, the soldiers, with Endicott at their head, had no other flag to march under than the same old papistical banner of England with the Red Cross in the midst of it. The banner of the Red Cross, likewise, was flying on the walls of the Fort of Salem, and a similar one was displayed in Boston Harbor from the fortress on Castle Island. I profess, Brother Williams, Captain Endicott would say after they had been talking of this matter, it distresses a Christian man's heart to see this idolatrous cross flying over our heads. A stranger beholding it would think that we had all undergone our hardships and dangers by sea and in the wilderness, only to get new dominions for the Pope of Rome. Truly good, Mr. Endicott, Roger Williams would answer. You speak as an honest man and Protestant Christian should. For my own part, were it my business to draw a sword, I should reckon it sinful to fight under such a banner. Neither can I, in my pulpit, ask the blessing of heaven upon it. Such, probably, was the way in which Roger Williams and John Endicott used to talk about the banner of the Red Cross. Endicott, who was a prompt and resolute man, soon determined that Massachusetts, if she could not have a banner of her own, should at least be delivered from that of the Pope of Rome. Not long afterwards, there was a military muster at Salem. Every able-bodied man in the town and neighborhood was there. All were well-armed, with steel caps upon their heads, plates of iron upon their breasts and at their backs, and gorgets of steel around their necks. When the sun shone upon these ranks of iron-clad men, they flashed and blazed with a splendor that bedazzled the wild Indians 
who had come out of the woods to gaze at them. The soldiers had long pikes, swords, and muskets, which were fired with matches and were almost as heavy as a small cannon. These men had mostly a stern and rigid aspect. To judge by their looks, you might have supposed that there was as much iron in their hearts as there was upon their heads and breasts. They were all devoted Puritans, and of the same temper as those with whom Oliver Cromwell afterwards overthrew the throne of England. They hated all the relics of popish superstition as much as Endicott himself, and yet over their heads was displayed the banner of the Red Cross. Endicott was the captain of the company. While the soldiers were expecting his orders to begin their exercise, they saw him take the banner in one hand, holding his drawn sword in the other. Probably he addressed them in a speech and explained how horrible a thing it was that men who had fled from popish idolatry into the wilderness should be compelled to fight under its symbols here. Perhaps he concluded his dress somewhat in the following style. And now, fellow soldiers, you see this old banner of England. Some of you, I doubt not, may think it treason for a man to lay violent hands upon it. But whether or no it be treason to man, I have good assurance in my conscience that it is no treason to God. Wherefore, I have resolved that we will rather be God's soldiers than soldiers of the Pope of Rome, and in that mind I now cut the papal cross out of this banner. And so he did, and thus, in a province belonging to the crown of England, a captain was found bold enough to deface the king's banner with his sword. When Winthrop and the other wise men of Massachusetts heard of it, they were disquieted, being afraid of Endicott's act would bring great trouble upon himself and them. An account of the matter was carried to King Charles, but he was then so much engrossed by dissensions with his people that he had no leisure to punish the offender. In other times, it might have cost Endicott his life and Massachusetts her charter. I should like to know, Grandfather, said Lawrence, when the story was ended, whether, when Endicott cut the Red Cross out of the banner, he meant to imply that Massachusetts was independent of England. A sense of independence of his adopted country must have been in that bold man's heart, answered Grandfather, but I doubt whether he had given the matter much consideration except in its religious bearing. However, it was a very remarkable affair and a very strong expression of Puritan character. Grandfather proceeded to speak further of Roger Williams and of other persons who sat in the great chair, as will be seen in the following chapter. That's the end of chapter three. Sleep well, my friend.